I think you're a little bit emotional, my love. There was a mini tear in my eye, but I'm not going to get sentimental. So we're just celebrating the, the difference that Jesus makes today. We're celebrating what God's done amongst us. Last week, Sophie talked about the distinction between remembering the past and dwelling on it. And that they are so different. We remember, the, we remember the past because it raises our faith and it celebrates what Jesus has done amongst us. But we don't want to dwell, in, dwell on it or romanticize it. It's easy to look back with kind of rose-tinted glasses um, on the past. But we, we, we just, if it grows our faith and if it moves us towards Jesus, we remember what he's done. And as we gather this morning, we're thankful for the last chapter and we're incredibly expectant for the next one. We're remembering the past and looking forward to the next decade. We hold together the past, the present, and the future. And for the next three weeks, I'm going to be talking on For Those Yet to Come. That's the, the title of what we're going to be looking at. And one way of thinking about it is for those, that word those, just replace it with something else. And it could be the, this, for friends not yet with us, for school friends not yet with us, for family members not yet with us, for neighbors not yet with us, for colleagues not yet with us, for refugees not yet with us, for students not yet with us, for vulnerable lives not yet with us. You can fill in that blank, can't you? We all know people that we are desperate to see Jesus break into their life. Absolutely desperate. We don't do this for a, a jolly good time. We do this because we are desperate for Jesus to break in. We know the difference that he's made in our own lives. Jesus, uh, Jen just stood up here, didn't she? And she just said, I love him. It's because I love him. And that's it. That's the foundation. It changes everything in our life. My motivation, our heartbeat behind this church is lives changed by Jesus. That we make disciples, that's what it talks about, make disciples. But the problem is so often it stops there. It's to make disciples who make disciples, who make disciples, who make disciples. That's what multiplication looks like, is, is, the, is the hope that the church gets bigger. Do you know what I mean? I mean, that's not... On one sense, it's like, yeah, let's get bigger. You know, that, that's not the drive. The drive is lives changed by Jesus. And those two things are different. We have a city that is utterly lost and broken. Utterly lost. And we believe that we have the answer. We believe that we found something in the person of Jesus that will radically, radically change people's lives. And so we can't sit here and we can't go, oh, isn't this wonderful in this room? This is a great start. But it's for those yet to come we exist for those yet to come, for those not yet with us. I can think of so many different people, whether they're at the school gate or my next door neighbor or fill in the blank that doesn't yet know Jesus. When we invite Jesus into our lives, we don't just keep nine-tenths the same and then 10% changes. It's not like we add church into our lives. The whole foundation changes. It's a seismic shift. That's what should happen. The whole house, if you were to picture our lives as each one of us building a house with the foundations that go in and the walls, and you picture the house, the whole house is leveled when we meet Jesus and we start again because he begins to rebuild the foundations. He begins to rebuild the walls. He puts it, and it looks utterly different. It's not just an addition to what is. It's a completely remaking of this house. And I want to talk a little bit about the parable of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great price this morning, because I think that really, for me, sums up what that looks like. 
the, the, the next chapter, the next decade is awaiting us. And it's one of change, it's one of expansion. As many of you know, in three weeks, we are launching the site into the north. So it's change. It's, it's not going to look the same. It would be very easy for us to be standing here and just saying, well, it's, it's just going to look exactly the same. It will not. It's going to look utterly different. The reason it's looking utterly different is because there are so many lives that yet don't know you, Jesus. They're not yet coming to the kingdom. We cannot sit here and just go, well, this is nice. There's more. There's more, to be, there's more to be done. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be looking at Matthew 13, verses 44 to 46. If you haven't, it's just going to come up on the screen behind me. It's really simple this morning. I'm pretty simple, but this is simple. It says this, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, went out and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. So in one case, in the first case, we probably have a man, just a normal working man, because anybody working in a field would be a normal working man, whereas we know that pearl merchants were people of incredible wealth. Can you imagine you're at a party and you turn around to somebody and you're like, oh, what do you do? I'm a pearl merchant. Like, interesting, unusual. But you'd sit there and go, loaded. (laughs) Wouldn't you? You'd be sitting there going, this person is minted. And then you'd be like, so, tell me about how much you earn. No, you wouldn't. Um, I probably would, actually. So what kind of good money in pearls, I can imagine? These are the difference between the two stories, however, moving on. One is a rich man. One is just you know, an ordinary person. One is deliberate. One finds it by accident. One has a seller who doesn't know what's going on. One has a seller who really does know what's going on. In other words, everything is different about these two stories and about these two guys. But when they actually get a hold of this spiritual treasure, because that's what it's talking about, their lives are completely changed because they must sell everything. Everything, both times, everything has to go. He sold all that he had in order to get that field. Everything about their lives has changed. It doesn't look the same. There's no halfway on spiritual treasure. Spiritual treasure will never, if it's real, just change you in a little way. It won't just improve you. So it won't be more of those, one more of those kind of self-help books that you just begin to make yourself a little bit better. Or you put another book, you know, the dieting book that makes you look a little bit better. Or Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. Or the, uh, next to that, we have the Bible. Do you know what I mean? It's almost like that can be how it is. We have all these different things in life. If it's real, if this spiritual treasure that we're talking about in this parable is real, it will utterly change your life, top to bottom, left to right, inside out, and in every direction. It changes everything. The whole motivation and direction of your life changes. So when we're reading this passage... This morning, I want you to keep two things in mind. The first thing that I want you to keep in mind is your own life as you're going through this. That we give our lives to Jesus, everything changes, but it doesn't end there. And actually, Sergio talked about that in the film, didn't he? Just at the end. He was like, I've changed, and I'm moving, and I'm changing. But we keep changing until we get to heaven. I want to grow up before I grow old. We keep keep growing, we keep changing. And there's a challenge in there that we don't just get stuck. So that's the first one. Then secondly, 
What this means for our friends, our colleagues, our friends, our neighbours, our fill-in-the-blank moment, what does this parable mean for them? Because if it's true, it changes everything. It's not just the same. And I wanted to just tell you a little bit of a story about John Wimber, who was the guy who started the Vineyard Movement. Uh, so the Vineyard Movement, for those of you who don't know, there's probably about nearly 3,000 churches worldwide now. It started about 30 years ago, but it's kind of exploded around the world. And there was this guy called John Wimber who started the movement, and he was a man who had no faith, was completely didn't know the Lord at all, and had this amazing um, moment and encounter with the Lord in the desert, and from then on, his life changed. But he tells this story about when he first read this parable, the pearl of great price. So I'll just tell you a bit of the story. He says this, my wife Carol and Gunnar, great name, the guy leading the Bible study was Gunnar, were talking on, uh, on and on about some issue. And I was sitting there bored, not really paying attention. Rude. Then Gunnar read the passage about the pearl in the Gospel of Matthew and explained how it referred to our need to be willing to sacrifice everything in our lives for the kingdom. That got my attention. Hold on a second, I interrupted. Are you saying that to become a Christian, somebody might have to give up everything that he has? Well, what do you think the text means? Gunnar replied. I'm not sure. I said, it sounds like it might mean that, but it took me a moment to collect my thoughts. Well, and then he went, I know this guy who's a musician. He doesn't know how to do anything but play music. I mean, this guy can't even tie up his own shoelaces. Are you saying that he might have to give up his career in order to become a Christian? How else could he make a living? Gunnar turns around and he says, well, your friend's going to have to work that one out for himself. Knowing, of course, that we were really talking about me. But in my opinion, he has to be ready to give up his career because it's a possibility. After I had this encounter with the Lord about the pearl and realized I didn't care much about what, what God wanted from me. That's often what happens, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? It's like, really? I'm just not sure that I want to do that. Sure enough, over the next few weeks, God began to help me liquidate my assets. I prayed, okay, Lord, you can have my career. And it was, it was as though two giant hands came out of heaven and they opened my fingers and a voice said, thank you. I said goodbye to my music friends and decided to get a regular job. And suddenly I was plunged into the real world. This was a guy that just lived at night. He was an amazing musician and actually the Righteous Brothers, he was part of them before they became really big. So this, this was a pivotal moment uh, in a music career. But his life was an utter mess. In a matter of weeks, I was working in a factory, clocking in and learning how to relate to normal people. And one day, I was assigned to clean some oil drums behind the factory. It was hot, filthy, smelly work. And it was the most menial task that they had. And the reason that they had me doing it was that it was about the only thing that I could do. I was down inside one of the oil drums when I heard a car drive up. And a familiar voice said, where's John Wimber's office? And reluctantly, I came out. And there stood in front of me was one of my old partners from the music business and in his hand was a contract I'd signed and it was worth a lot of money. In order for, for, for him to fulfill it, I had to relinquish my part of it. And he just stood there staring at me. I was a mess. I had grease all over me, my hands, my clothes, my face, just covered in grease. And he finally said to me, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? And I looked at him and then I looked at myself and then I looked at him again and then at myself. And I could see myself as I must have looked through his eyes. And right at that moment, I didn't feel as if I had the pearl. I could not think of a single thing to say. And after a long silence, I answered him lamely, 
God did this to me. And his eyes narrowed with a look of resolve as if to say he's never going to do that to me. And I felt ashamed. Obviously, what I was doing with my life seemed to be utter foolishness to him. And at that moment, I couldn't think of a single persuasive explanation of why God, this God of God, love, this God that's so great in the Bible, this God that's so nice to so many people was apparently being so mean to me, why he'd chosen to treat me this way. And as I watched my friend drive away, I realized that sometimes there's no way to explain obedience and sacrifice to God to those who do not see the pearl. My friend could not see any value in this at all, in God taking me down from a lofty, worldly position and teaching me simple obedience. Since that day, I found that all through our lives, in our service to God and his people, we will be put into a situation where others look at us with disdain because our obedience and sacrifice to God doesn't make any sense to them. But for those who found the pearl, it all makes perfect sense. We know that it's worth everything to follow him to walk with him, to serve him, to lose our lives for him. It's worth everything we own to gain Christ and to be found in him. Obedience deepens our intimacy with Jesus. And if we want to know the Father, we must not only love him, but we also must obey him. Obedience to Jesus shows that we know that he is God and that we are not. It shows that we understand that God knows the best for us in all things. And when it comes to direction in our lives, for example, when we need to be careful of is not what could possibly hurt us or what he has in store for us to accomplish. Rather, it's a process of learning to trust and obey what he shows us. True happiness comes from letting God not only be our savior, but also our Lord in every decision. It's quite a story, isn't it? It's quite a story. And what I'm not saying, and sometimes you, you, you teach on something and everybody's saying, you will have to give up your jobs. It's not what I'm saying at all. Many of you do amazing jobs and God loves you being in the workplace and he's got you exactly where he wants you right now. You are earning money and you, it's, it's, you know, you're changing people's lives because you're there. But there is an issue of obedience that comes and there is an issue about learning to hear the Lord's voice. If the Lord hadn't brought him out of that place, he wouldn't have been able to start the things that the Lord had on, on him to do. It was, it, was a, it was a matter of obedience in that moment. Spiritual treasure changes your life utterly and totally. Imagine if you were dying of a disease and somebody came to you and they said, I've got some medicine that will cure you. And you say, wonderful, this is amazing, amazing news. And they said, that only one problem, it's incredibly expensive. It's so, so expensive. You are going to have to sell absolutely everything that you have in order to get this. For those of you that have houses and cars and those things, for others of you, think of fill in the blank of what that might be. You might even have to give up your phone, go that far. You are going to have to give up everything. What would you say? In that moment, you would say, these things, they don't seem important to me now. They don't seem important because I need this, because I need this medicine. And if I don't have this medicine, it will not change my life. I need this, it will change my life. You would say, what good is it if I have all of these things, but I don't have this? But if I don't have Jesus, it doesn't make sense. Now, do you know how this monumental change in your attitude towards everything in your life begins to happen? The answer is this. You realize that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Because it's so easy to, the, to do the Jesus plus gospel. 
Jesus plus this, Jesus plus this, and add him in. That's not what it's saying. This is not what this passage is about. Jesus is sufficient. Jesus is enough. All of these things in the world that we have will one day perish, spoil, and fade, but he will remain. Suddenly, when you see this medicine, that's when your attitude towards everything else changes. What's the spiritual analogy? It's this. He went with joy to sell everything that he had. We come back into the passage at this moment. With joy, he sold everything that he had. In both cases, they took out all of their material wealth. Barry took all of his money out of the mattress and put it into the field. Hugo, the pearl merchant, liquidated all of his money and put it into the pearl. The reason that they were able to do a transfer of material wealth was because in their heart they'd, always done, they'd already done uh, an exchange of emotional wealth. Something had already happened inside them. They transferred their emotional wealth. Well, what do I mean by that? Every single one of our hearts has our wealth in something, whatever it is. And you can tell this by two quick tests. This is from Tim Keller. He says this, you can tell where your heart has all of its emotional wealth. First of all, there's the solitude test. Archbishop William Temple said, if you want to know what you really worship, if you want to know what you really treasure, if you want to know what your real God is, where does your mind go during solitude? When you don't have anything to think about, what is it that you're thinking about? That will tell you something. So first there's the solitude test, and then secondly there's the nightmare test. The nightmare test is what is it that if you should lose it, you would feel like something in you is being destroyed? That's the nightmare. So there's the solitude test and the nightmare test, and these things begin to tell us what it is that on an incredibly deep level are so important to us. Now, if you come to God and you will not transfer your emotional wealth, if you'll keep your, your wealth in your things and you come to God and you say this, I'm going to go to church, I'm going to pray, I'm going to read the Bible, I'm going to do all of these things, why? Well, that's the question. There are two ways to come. On the one hand, you can come not having made the transfer of this emotional wealth and your heart's treasure is still in the things of this world and you come to God and you basically say, what do I have to do to please you so that you'll give me these things, so that you'll answer my prayers, so that I can still have my career, so that I can still have my friends, my health, my looks, my family, my whatever it is. What do I have to do? You never give God everything because basically what you're saying is, well, I'm doing something for you. Now you do something for me. That's what's really going on. If we haven't given it all to Jesus, what we're doing is we, can't, we give this little bit and then we're waiting for him. And we're saying, now you give this to me. And what happens is you are always grumpy because, you're, because you haven't transferred your emotional wealth. You always feel like God owes you something. It's still in these things. Therefore, you're going out maybe and you're trying to serve God, but there is no joy in it. Do you notice in this passage, it then goes on to talk about joy. With joy, he gave everything that he had because he realizes what the value of this incredible pearl is of Jesus. The other possibility is to do what they did. They look at the value of what's been given and they look at the value of what's gone and they're like, there's no comparison between these two things. A Christian is somebody who doesn't keep their emotional wealth or his or her emotional wealth in the things and then go to God and say, what do I have to do? You see, you see what Jesus has done for you. You see that he and he alone has done it all. There's this great paragraph by C.S. Lewis, and I've used this a couple of times before, but for me, this is the image that I want you to think about 
as I'm talking about this pearl of great price. There's just this um, passage by C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, and he puts it perfectly, and he says this. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. So at first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, and he's stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. And you knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from one that you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running out towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace. Why? He intends to come and live in it, live in it himself. Isn't that such an incredible picture of what the Lord wants to do? John Wimber could have stood there, and in that moment, we, we are going to have moments on the journey of faith where we sit there and we're like, I have, Lord, I do not know what you're doing. I do not know why you've asked me to do this. I don't know why you're asking me to take this step from here or give up this job or step into this new opportunity. And for John, that was the case. That He just felt the Lord was saying, you've got to give this up. And so he did, and in obedience, and there was that moment when his friend came to see him, and there was this moment of deep shame. It's like, Lord, what are you doing? How could you do this to me? Shame is a really hard thing for us to deal with. But then what happens is he begins to reflect on his life. It's like, do you know what, Lord? It was all worth it because you couldn't have brought the new things into existence that you had for me. I couldn't have done both of those things. There will be a total revolution in your life. The real issue is, are you willing to look at the pearl? Are you willing to look at the treasure? Are you willing to look at it and see its value until there's an emotional transfer of wealth and, it, and you let it revolutionize your life? It's big, isn't it? We so easily want to cling on to something else, to put our hope and trust into the things of the world. But in coming in to finish, I've got this question as you think about your own life, because it's easy to say, in the moment that I come to faith, Jesus is the pearl. But would you say right now in your life that Jesus is the pearl? For you, personally. And if it came to it, that you would give up all things to go after the pearl. Because that's, that's what Jesus is calling us to. That's what the kingdom of heaven looks like. It's obedience. It's obedience to him. We feel that in terms of this church as well. You know, as I talk about the next decade, and I'm not going to do much on that today, but over the next two, week, two weeks, I'm going to be looking at that, talking about the, the next five years, the next 10 years. It would have just been so easy to settle. Just to settle and have a nice, comfortable church where we just sat here and we went, this is nice, isn't it? But actually, that is not the picture of the gospel. That is not going after the pearl. Jesus has whispered his voice to us and he said, go again. He said, I'm calling you onwards. You're not done. This isn't it. And do you know what? There's cost in that. There's cost in going again. You know, launching the north site. There's going to be cost in that. There's cost in money. There's cost in change there's cost in a whole load of different things but because jesus has spoken what what else can we do for me it's not even a choice 
It's just me and Jen. It's like the Lord has spoken. This is what we're called to. And therefore, we go after it with everything that we've had because we've heard Jesus' voice. It's like, Lord, we want to hear your voice and we want to obey. And I want to finish with this. When we came down 10 years ago, there were 16 other wonderful people that came with us. We thought that we'd come alone. But Jesus spoke, and it was Jesus, spoke to 16 other people about coming with us. Those 16 people laid the platform for this church. They heard the Lord because it was between them and Jesus. And they heard the Lord. And do you know what they did during those first years, and they still do now? is that they served so hard, that they opened their homes, that they came, that they led, that they gave. They gave so generously in order to enable this to happen. They, played, they kind of paved the platform and built the foundation for those yet to come. They built for those yet to come. Do you know what? This group has grown a bit, hasn't it? And you know, it's amazing looking. We haven't even got the kids in yet because you're going to go crazy when the kids come in. You're going to be like... Shabba. Um, <laughs> what I'm saying is you have the opportunity to build the platform for those yet to come. What we're not doing is we're not talking about 16, 18 of us. We're talking about however many of us there are. There's quite a lot of us now. And what we are doing and what me and Jen are saying today on our birthday is that we're inviting you into this adventure. And it is an adventure. And you know what? It will cost. I'm not going to pretend it won't. It does. But it is, the most, it is the most joyful thing that we get to do. Because that's what it talks about. The Pearl of Price talks about joy. And that is incredible joy. And if you were to sit down with any one of those people, I think that they would talk about the joy. We're actually meet, we're going to have a little lunch afterwards. Just to, we, we don't meet up at all, you, you know, the team that came down. But we're just going to have a lunch today. Because I, me and Jen just want to say we're so grateful. We're so grateful that you came and that you built this with us in Jesus. But this invitation is to you now. Come and build this next chapter with us. Come and build this platform with us. We're so excited.